Please turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. The church in Laodicea. The church, uh, this is the church that is offering a self-deceived lip service to God. And so the title of the sermon comes from a line in a Taylor Swift song, and I will probably formally apologize for that tomorrow. <laughs> but whatever. All right, so let me read this to you. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? And this could be your Bible for next year's literacy thing. See? See how that works out? Uh, if not, you, you have one or open your app, whatever, digital thing, device. Verse 14. Let me read this and then I'll pray. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this text, this um, very, very heavy, um, scathing almost text, I pray that we would all hear um, in, all the, in the midst of all the, the, the almost calling us out, the rebuke, the discipline, we would hear the intimate voice of Jesus calling us to be intimate with you, calling us to dine with you, calling us to be with you. So I pray that more than anything, I pray that we would hear the rebuke, that you would show us ourselves, and then through that, we would hear the invitation of Christ this morning. Would you anoint my words and give me focus, and I submit all of my capacities to you. Would you speak to us together, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So we've been in the book of Revelation. We come now to the seventh and final church in the churches of Revelation. Um, what we said we've been trying to do in this series that we've been calling 7 by 7 is to listen for the Spirit of God to identify our own church's peculiar unholy spirit. So what we've been trying to do is listen to these churches' unholy spirit, what was going on in the culture and the spirit of these churches, some of them, most of them, that's unholy, and then how, how are we going to let that call us out in us at Reality San Francisco, maybe our even unholiness, our unholy spirit, and as we do, offering, we, we want to hear the, the voice of the Spirit of God offering to us the presence and the grace of Christ to transform us 
for the Spirit of God to work in us, to be a faithful people to God. That's, what, that's been our hope. Um, at the very beginning, when we first started this series um, a couple months ago, we started in the first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And I quoted to you from Dead Poet Society when Robin Williams gathers his class around and he talks about the purpose of art and poetry. Um, and he quotes from Walt Whitman. And he gets his whole class around and he, he has them kneel down and he talks about the purpose of poetry. And, and medicine's important, education's important, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff's important. But poetry adds life and love and color to the world. And poetry's so important. And then he says this and he quotes Whitman. He goes, Oh me, oh life. The questions of these recurring, basically, like, what is life all about? And then he says, What is it? Answer that you are here and life exists and identity. And that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. So this is that powerful scene where he says, a powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Then he repeats the last line of the poem. The, uh, the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. That's the end of the poem. And then Robin Williams adds to his class, what will your verse be? So this cosmic powerful play goes on and in that play there's life that exists and identity that exists but it keeps going on and and we all can contribute a verse and then he asks his class what will your verse be and what we said at the very beginning of this series that this powerful play this powerful drama of the story of God goes on and unfolds and revelation is the end of this unfolding like how is God going to bring about justice and rightness and holiness into the world and he's telling these churches you churches can contribute a verse what will your verse be Reality San Francisco, you may contribute a verse to what God is doing in the world globally and throughout history. What will your verse be? And that is what Jesus is asking every one of these churches. And what he's asking of this church, what will our verse be? This moment in history in the city of San Francisco, as we contribute to the unfolding story of God, what God is doing in this city in this moment, what will our verse be? That's what this is asking. A couple weeks ago, I was um, taking a spin class which is a rare thing that I ever talk about, but um, <laughs> I was. And I don't, I don't necessarily like the instructors that yell at you. They're like, come on, and they're yelling. And the more they yell at me, the more I'm like, I don't really care what you're saying. I'm not gonna do what you're saying. I mean, it's just rebellion to me. Anyway, so I had this one instructor and she was, she was yelling, right when you have to like sit down and spin really, 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 really fast, like go as far, she would yell, this is your moment. She would yell that, this is your moment. And I would be like, I'm, I'm going, I'm like, wait, this is my moment, <laughs> this, this right here is, I, I'm out, like I can't do this. If this is my moment, I don't want a moment. This is like going really hard on a stationary bike is my moment. And I think language is really important to me and I guess I don't like it when people make words mean nothing. Like that means nothing, it doesn't mean anything. And Jesus is not doing that here. He's not like wasting words. He's precise and he's actually saying, Laodicea, this is your moment. He said that to every single church and he's saying that to us. He's not wasting those words. Those are real words of Christ. This is your moment. And the moment that Laodicea was living in, most writers and commentators say that this is our, this is closest to our current moment especially in the Western world. Now, no matter how people interpret Revelation, and there are a trillion ways to interpret Revelation, most people agree that Laodicea is the closest that we have to like what our current moment is. And the reason why they say that is this. Um, in Laodicea, there were no heretics mentioned in Laodicea. 
And the, church, the Western church today, I should say the Western church today, um, there, there are heretics, but they get pushed to the side pretty quick. They get sidelined really fast. When you start messing with the deity of Christ and the resurrection and things about, you, as, as a leader in the church, you get sidelined pretty fast. No one listens to you anymore. You become irrelevant really quick. Um, in the church in Laodicea, there were no evildoers. That's kind, I mean, the, 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 the sins that are, that are easily seen, we tend to sideline those leaders as well pretty fast in the church. And the third reason is there were no persecutors of the church in Laodicea. And the Western church lives with very minimal persecution today. And so in that, they're going, wow, this this church here in Revelation 3 actually probably uh, parallels the church today more than any other church. And the problem with Laodicea was that the church was lukewarm. And most commentators say today the biggest problem in the church today is that the church, the Western church especially, I wouldn't say all the church all over the world, but the Western church is lukewarm. It's tepid. It's it's. To use um, a line from Pink Floyd, it's comfortably numb. The church is comfortably numb. It's ineffective in their embodiment of Jesus' gospel. And this is why most commentators, no matter how they interpret Revelation, will say that this church, more than any other church, best represents the Western church today. And it should be noted that there is nothing good said about this church. Nothing. This is the only church. I mean, even Sardis... Uh, Jesus said, there's a few of you that haven't uh, soiled your garments or haven't become impure, but this nothing. Now, what was going on in this church and why do, why do so many draw parallels to the church today? Well, first, let's deal with this lukewarm thing. What does it mean to be lukewarm? Jesus says to this church in verse 15, I know your deeds. I know how you're acting, what you're doing. That you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish you were either one or the other. I wish you were cold or hot. But because you're neither cold nor hot, but you're actually lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, let me, let me just speak about what this isn't. We've heard a lot of teachings probably on this passage, probably the most popular Revelation passage right here. Um, let me tell you what this is not saying. Uh, Jesus is not talking about spiritual temperature here. Um, he's talking about temperature, but he's not talking about spiritual temperature. Jesus is not saying, I wish you were either on fire or a cold atheist. But because you're in the middle, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's how a lot of people interpret this. I wish you were on fire for me or a cold atheist because then I would know what to do with you. Now, this, this just doesn't work interpretively. This just this doesn't work. Jesus is not telling the church, I wish you were spiritually cold. He's not saying that. He told the church in Ephesus that they were cold in their love for him. They've forsaken their first love. And he wasn't glad that they were cold. He actually tells them that he doesn't want our love to grow cold. So this can't, Jesus would not say that to the church. He can't say, man, I really wish you guys were cold. This can't mean that Jesus wishes the church would grow cold. This has to mean something else. Um, Laodicea, the city historically, had two neighboring towns that were very known for their water. Um, Heropolis was known for its hot waters, which, which possessed medicinal effects. And Colossae was known for its cold spring water, which also thought, was thought to be healthy. Both of these water sources were useful. Both of them were effective. In Laodicea, the city, as a city, it had no good water source, kind of like our own city. And they had to pipe water in from somewhere else, like, like San Francisco. We get our water from Hetch Hetchy, which is oh, good water. It's the best water, I think. But unlike our city, 
By the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and dirty. And when you drank Laodicean water, it made you want to vomit. It was gross water. What Jesus was doing here, he was taking this very well-known reality and saying, the church is like that. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one of them because both, of, both hot and cold are effective and proper in their uses. But you are neither. You are lukewarm. You are ineffective. You are without use. And you make me want to vomit. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty heavy language. And this is, this is what this teaches us. This teaches us that the church, that this what this is here, if you're new, welcome, this is the church. The church has a Jesus-oriented and Jesus-ordained purpose. The church has a Jesus-oriented and Jesus-ordained purpose to fulfill in its city and its context and its society. We can't just get away with saying, well, we believe the right things or we behave in the right ways, or we're blessed in all things. We can't, so we're good, right? We're good. We, we kind of like, as a church, we believe the right things. We're kind of behaving in the right ways, and we're blessed. We're really blessed in this city, in this church. So we're good, right? And Jesus would say, no, you're not good by those things. You have a purpose to fulfill. You have a historic moment to live into and to be faithful with. I will not let you get away with just existing and doing fun, safe Christian things. That is not what you're here for. And this is what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, and this is what Jesus says to us. You can't get away with that. You have a historic moment in which I placed you in this city, in this specific time for a reason. Let me share with you um, a fear I have for this church. This is a, a reoccurring fear I've had for this church, especially recently, over the last year. That because of the size of this church and how you might come in and think, and you might listen and you're like, oh, it sounds like this church is saying the right things, kind of. Like mostly the right things. And it seems like, at least outwardly, when we gather, people are behaving in the right way. They're singing really loud, and they're receiving communion, and they're nice to each other, and there's that four minutes meeting and greet. Who does four minutes? There's so much time. Like, that's really hospitable. Like, it seems like, and it seems like this, is, this place is blessed, quote, blessed place or whatever. This, it feels like that. I, I fear that more and more people will come into a church, in this church, and because it just seems like everything's right, you will lay dormant. You will lay lukewarm. And you will go to this church, and this is my fear, that you won't pray for the church and with the church because someone else will do that. Look at how many people are here. Surely there's people praying for this, this church. There's enough people here. I don't need to show up for a prayer meeting. I don't need to pray for this church by myself. You will stop serving in the church and alongside the church in the city because someone else will handle that. And you have other things to do. Someone, you'll stop giving because surely other people can afford that and you have student loans or whatever or rent to pay because it just went up again. Or you used to go to prayer meetings and you used to lead or you used to give or I'm waiting to. I'm waiting to go. I'm waiting to give. I'm waiting to lead. All the while you lay dormant and it takes just enough of us to lay dormant, to lay lukewarm that the temperature of our entire church changes. The, the, the culture of our church changes. The usefulness of our church changes for God's purposes in this world, in this city. See, lukewarm and dormant is like the default mode of our, mode of our hearts. Like our hearts just naturally go to lukewarm. It just does. Just like our heart just kind of gets, gets, gets like tepid. It just gets like comfortable. Especially in a city like San Francisco. 
Our hearts get so lukewarm in a city like San Francisco, and it's like, the, it's like the default mode. And let me explain what I mean by that. What did lukewarmness look like for the church in Laodicea? What did it look like? For a church to be lukewarm, and when Jesus is calling them out in, what did it look like? It was being ineffective, but how did they get there? Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, and this is, this is gosh, this is hard. He says to them, you say, and we don't know if they were saying this out loud or in their hearts, but enough of them in the church were saying this, that the whole church got rebuked for it. You say, I am, quote, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That is harsh. Lukewarmness for the church in Laodicea came from a self-sufficiency based on self-deception. It came from a self-sufficiency based on self-deception. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. Um, They were known for their wealth. Laodicea was known for its export of fashion. Uh, They made these like beautiful black wool garments that they exported all over the world. They were known for them. Laodicea was known for its practice of medicine and had created an eye salve that that uh, that could cure effects of physical sight. This city had everything. And the church kind of took on that climate and became self-sufficient. But they didn't realize in their self-sufficiency, this is what happens when we get self-sufficient, we get self-deceived. We think we're okay. We think we have it together. We have enough of life together where we think we have the whole thing together. And living in such a rich city with access to industry and fashion and banking and medicine and all the things that a wealthy city brings, the church in that city became misguided in their prosperity. They thought, we have it. They were somehow saying they were good because they had enough money. They were good because they had enough people. They were good and they settled and they settled into lukewarmness. They settled into uselessness. They settled into like, I, I'm, we're good. We actually don't need, like, we're at, we actually can exist, and they would say this, and this is a wicked thing to think, but we, we, we can do this. We can actually survive without God because we have money in the bank. We can actually survive without God because we have a roof over our heads. We can actually survive without God because we have enough things. And they became, they became self-deceived. They did not realize how much need that they really had. They stopped praying in the church, God, unless you do something, we're done. That was not a prayer of theirs. Their prayer was like, God, just keep blessing us. We're doing good. I mean, we don't, we don't have need of anything. They weren't like just really, really desperate for God. Like, God, unless you do something, we're all done. We're, all of us are done. They, didn't, they stopped saying, God, we need you so badly. This wealth is paper. This is dust. These resources can go away in a second. Christ, we need you. They stopped saying that. They stopped praying that as a church, and the church lost that. And they were making budget, and they had people and resources and a place in the city. Church, that cannot happen here. It cannot happen. It cannot happen in any heart here. We all must say, we need, we need, we need, we are dependent on Christ. Every, every week, um, we sit together as a sermon team, talk about the sermon. I sit together with Tyler, our worship director, um, a director of music, and we sit together and we craft the, the Sunday worship gathering. We like talk about the sermon, the music that we're choosing, like that, and we try to dovetail both of them together. And then all, every, it's a joke now, every single week, I sit back and go, Tyler, you know what song would really fit into the sermon? 
I need you. Every single week I say that. You know what song would really fit? I, he, we did that last week, but it would really fit this week. It would really fit. I love that. I, I, the first time I heard that song, I'm like, I wish I wrote that song. I wish I wrote that song. That's my song. Or I, and I heard, I'm like, that is, that's my, that's, that, I love everything. About, I can sing that song anytime, anywhere. It's just like, I, I want our church to be known for that sort of attitude. Like, no matter how prosperous we are, we won't be deceived that it's from us or it can't go away in a second. We need God. And we all need God. And we all need to make that like a prayer in our hearts. We need God. Yes. And we, and I ask to sing it every, every, every week. Um, and when it's not in there, last minute I'm like, dude, we got to do that song. It might happen today. I don't know. One writer, um, commentator that I was, I was reading and I really respect in, on Revelation said, he said this, and it made me kind of angry because I hate when people write this stuff. Um, but I, I had to wrestle with it. He said that one of the hardest places to be a disciple of Jesus is in a city, especially in a thriving city. Whenever I read that, I, I hate it. I'm like, oh, here are the country bumpkin people just saying, move to the country and like love Jesus in the woods. So I'm like, I hate it. Um, I just think your faith can thrive in a city. But so I'm listening to this. I'm like, okay, what does he mean by this? And he says that the reason is that most cities are built with our own two hands so that we can sit back and say, look what we have done. Most cities are built on pride. And that's why it's hard, because that, that, that seeps into the pores of a Christian. And I'm like, oh, okay, that, that actually makes sense. Here's the flag of San Francisco. There's actually a petition going on to change this flag, because they said it's just boring and dull, and they want to make it, like, colorful, like San Francisco is. But this flag actually has a lot of meaning. This flag, first there's the phoenix, as you know, it's the phoenix. It rises from the ashes, and this was chosen, like, in the late 1800s and adopted in the early 1900s. The reason why this is the symbol of San Francisco is because that the city has literally burned down to the ground a few times. And every single time we rebuild ourselves. And we do it pretty fast too. Like they started working when 1906 earthquake fire like burned out like on Thursday and by Sunday they were like people working on rebuilding the city. And it was completely redone. Like 20,000 buildings were erected in like two or three years or something like that. Something crazy. Like we, we it's been, it, our city has burned down a few times. And every single time it rises from the ashes and rebuilds itself. And then underneath uh, the, the, the phoenix in the fire is a little saying. And it's, it's in Spanish. And it says, gold in peace, iron in war. That's our motto for our city, if you didn't know that. Our, the motto for our city is gold in peace, iron in war. That's so tough. It says, in peace, we are prosperous. And in war, we're strong and we're prosperous because we just, we make iron. And then we like build ships. That's all the shipyards and the Bayview. Like we build, when, when there's war, we get to work. And when there's, when there's time of peace, we thrive. We're a prosperous city. So what this flag is saying about San Francisco is that we're strong, we're sufficient, self-sufficient, we're innovative, we're resourceful and wealthy, and we can raise ourselves from the dead. That's what our flag says. And what Jesus says to the church and Laodicea, and what it teaches us is that the church can take on the climate and posture of its city and thus endanger their life with God. That we can live in the city of San Francisco and then the, the independence, the self-sufficiency, the, 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 the wealth can seep into the pores of, 
of the church, of Christians in the city. And then we can become unaware of our true condition before God. We can start to think we actually have it together. We are doing a good job. We're fine without God. And we can start saying we're wealthy. We have no need of anything. And we can think back to the days where we needed God, but we're through that phase in life now. I think all of us have gone through that, where we've lost something, and we had a phase where we're like, oh, Christ is everything, and then we kind of like, oh, I got back on our feet again. And, oh, well, Christ is everything still, but I, like, I'm doing a lot of things now. Um, Christ is not a phase. Jesus, what Jesus reveals here, uh, remember the book is called Revelation, meaning the unveiling. What Jesus does in the book of Revelation is pulls back the true nature of reality. That's what he does. He like, oh, you think that um, your city is just like happy, go luck. Actually, it can be very demonic. And he pulls back and shows, shows Satan. He pulls back and shows dragons. And he uses all this vivid language to, to reveal to us what's really going on in ultimate transcendent reality. And that's what he's doing to this church in Laodicea. He's pulling back and he's saying, oh, you say that I'm rich. I've acquired wealth, but do not need a thing. Let me reveal something to you. But you don't realize. You don't see. Let me reveal to you something. You are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. You are rich and you are proud of your riches, but in the things that really matter, you are poor and you don't even know it. Then he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So what Jesus does here is he picks up on commercial language the language of commerce that they know very well in Laodicea. He says, buy from me. Buy from me. I, I'm going to offer you something that you're looking for. That which, I'm going to offer you something that you're looking for, but what you're really looking for. He says, you're, you're buying and you're selling and you're trading. Yes, but buy from me gold. Because the gold of Laodicea has no lasting value. Buy from me clothes. Because the garments I offer you can truly cover your naked shame. Buy from me eye salve so you can see ultimate reality through the eyes of faith. So you can't purchase the things of Christ. You can't purchase them monetarily. But the things of Christ cost something. Okay? They cost something. You can't buy them with money, but they cost something. And they co- it will cost your trust. It will cost your faith, your dependence on God for your entire life. That's what it costs. Your dependence on on God. The beautiful thing about verse 18 that I, I really love so much is that what comes out in verse 18 is the character of Jesus. So in verse 17, it's like you're pitiful, poor, blind, naked, wretched. And that we would hear that and go, oh my gosh, why is Jesus even saying that? He's so mean. But then the very next verse, he steps toward us. And he steps toward us and says, I, I don't expose you just to expose you. Jesus doesn't like expose your wretchedness and your poor your poverty and your blindness and your nakedness and your shame just to go ah expose see i told you and he doesn't do that just to do it he does it so that he might cover us he does it so that we might see the harmful self-deception that we live under and he tries to help us he exposes us so that he can lovingly cover us jesus always moves toward brokenness. So he sees the church in Laodicea and they're all poor and wretched and blind but they think they're having a good time and he moves toward them in love. He steps toward them and he offers them an invitation and he offers them the invitation of intimacy. He, it says, um, I, I, I counsel you or I, this is my advice to you. So he advises them. 
But we have to recognize. We have to wake up from our self-deception. That's, that's a huge part of this thing. We have to see, if you, if you will just recognize our true, your true poverty, if you will just recognize your true poverty without Christ, Christ will enrich you with His riches. If you will recognize your nakedness, Christ will clothe you with His garments. If you will recognize your blindness, He will make you see with His eyes. It takes self-realization first. Like, I am truly poor. I am truly naked. I am truly blind. I can't see things. Christ, would you help me? These are words of compassion. These are words of love. And that's what Jesus says in the next verse. He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. This should be um, a memory verse. Just, we don't like this at all. We have such like bad memories of our parents trying to discipline us that I think all of us are revolted by this. Like those whom I love, if Christ loves you, he rebukes you and he disciplines you. Now rebuke is like an immediate thing, right? It's like, it's like that thing where he just says, get it back on the right path right now, stop. Stop doing what you're doing. You're killing yourself. You're killing other people. Stop. It's just a sharp rebuke. A discipline is more of like a long view thing. Like, let's go in this direction. Walk with me in this way. Jesus says that he does both of these out of love. Now, the rebuke and the discipline of God is not punitive. It's always redemptive. For the follower of Jesus, there remains no wrath. Jesus has taken all the punishment of of our sin on the cross. So what's happening with rebuke? If it's not punitive, if Jesus isn't punishing us, what is he doing? What is rebuke and discipline for for the follower of Christ? It's redemption. Redemption is the process of God willing to do what is necessary to completely transform us. Even if that means exposing our wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and shameful nakedness. Out of love, He moves toward us and he does what's necessary to show us how weak we really are because if we don't see it, we'll we'll destroy ourselves. And he does it because he's redeeming us. He rebukes us out of love for us. And so Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and and I discipline out of love, out of redemption. So be earnest and repent. Now, how do they do that? How do we do that? So uh, Jesus is asking them to become what they're not, right? This is what it feels like. He's saying, okay, you guys are lukewarm, and I want you to be earnest. How are they going to move, move from, like, lukewarmness to earnestness? How are they going to move from, like, we don't, really, we don't really care, we're indifferent, to, like, so are they are supposed to work it up, like, get really hyped, like, put on a worship album, like, yes, Jesus, like, are they supposed to, like, work it up within themselves? No. They actually, um, the next verse kind of talks about this, they don't really need to move at all. What Jesus is asking them to do is they need to open their lives to God. They need to let Jesus in. That's the the movement they need to make. They don't need to work up this earnestness. What they need to do is actually commune with Christ. So verse 20, it says, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Somehow, Jesus got kicked out of this church, his own church. Jesus got kicked out of his own church due to their self-sufficiency, their financial security, their superior knowledge, their lack, of, their lack of nothing. They didn't lack anything. They pushed Jesus out of the church, and he's knocking to get back in. Can I come back into my church? 
Lukewarmness happens when we start excluding Jesus from areas of our life. That's how lukewarmness starts setting it. We um, exclude him from, from just certain pockets and areas of our life where we have not invited him in for intimacy and communion and dependence. We exclude Jesus from our work. We exclude Christ from our finances. We exclude Christ from the decisions that we make with our bodies, from our daydreams, from our future, and then eventually our whole lives. And then there are enough of us that do that in the church where we exclude Jesus from our lives, where he subtly gets kicked out of the entire church where enough individuals start kicking Christ out of all of their life and then eventually he leaves the entire church. So there's this individual and corporate wordplay that Jesus does here. He says, he says at the very beginning that you are a lukewarm church. The church is lukewarm. And then he makes it, he individualizes it a bit. He talks about individual intimacy. He says, the church has grown lukewarm, and my invitation is to you as individuals. If you hear my voice, open the door, and I will come in and eat with you. I will eat with that person. So this is, this is a, a really interesting way of talking about the church, because he talks about it corporately, then he talks about it by person. He says, the whole church has kicked me out, and the whole church is lukewarm, and the way I get back in is by entering into individual lives. The way I'm in is that individual people start to be intimate with me. Individual people start letting me into their lives and different parts of the lives where they haven't let me in. And then once individuals, because individuals make up the church, then I'm in the church again. There's a sense where we can't really latch on to the intimacy of others. My wife can't ride on the coattails of my intimacy with Jesus, and I can't ride on hers. You can't ride on my intimacy with Christ, church. I can't ride on our worship leader's intimacy with Christ. I can't ride on your intimacy with Christ. Jesus calls all of us to hear his voice and to let him in and commune with him personally. There's this individual, as much as I don't, I hate individual language, there is an invita individual invitation to every member of the church this morning to be intimate with Christ, to let Christ in to let Christ in every area of your life and be brought in for communion, to be brought in for a meal. Communion with Christ is not a nibble. It's not like this bite. Um, I'm done. It's like, it's this it's, it's like a, uh, a first century meal was long and drawn out and intimate. And I mean, you didn't just share meals with anyone in that, in that time. You shared people, meals with people that you want to identify with, that you wanted to be intimate with. And that's why Jesus got so like reamed because he would eat with tax collectors and sinners because he wants to know people. He wants to know you. He wants to be let in. And then once we let him in to our lives, he's brought back into the church. That's how it works. And so we have an invitation this morning. We have an invitation before us to stop hiding. Stop hiding behind your self-sufficiency. Stop hiding behind your wealth. Stop hiding behind your fashion. Stop hiding behind your knowledge. Stop hiding behind your shame. Christ wants us to stop hiding and then to invite him in. And once he's invited into our lives and, and once he's invited into our individual lives in, in ways of dependency, then the church becomes hot and cold again, useful in the hands of God. The whole church is. See, the ministry of Jesus is that of an exchange. Christ is all, this is what Christ does. He takes and then he gives. He takes death and he gives life. 
He takes brokenness and he gives wholeness. He takes shame and he gives acceptance. Jesus' first sermon in a synagogue when he started his ministry was out of a reading in Isaiah 61. It's one of my favorite scenes of Jesus. Um, The synagogue reading for that day was Isaiah 61, so he stands and he reads the text. And you're supposed to exposit it and talk about it a little bit. But then he sits down and he goes, that's me. Whatever Isaiah was saying, that's me. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's me. So he reads the text and he says, that text is talking about me. And he sits down. Done. End of story. I want to read that text to you because it's this language of exchange, just like Laodicea, that I will, that, that you are so, you think that you are so wealthy, but you're poor and I can give you riches. You think that you can see and that your city has make, makes this great medicine, but you don't realize that you're sick and I can actually make you whole um, and I can cause you to see. And you think you clothe yourself with all these great garments, but they're black wool and I want to give you white linen, bright and clean to wear. It says in Isaiah 61, speaking of, eventually speaking of Christ, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for all those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair, and they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. This is the invitation of God this morning for every individual soul. Let's pray.